9 out of 10 startups fail. Women and minority-led companies receive less than 10% of all venture capital. This is an environment designed for failure. Startup Hype Man's mission is to use the power of story to make success inevitable, not the exception. And this podcast is designed for entrepreneurs to share lessons learned from their stories so that you can figure out what whatever it takes means for your company to make it. Let's kick it. I am glad you're not recording this. This would be bad. From the Hype HQ recording studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I am your host and the Startup Hype Man, Raj Nation. Every week we bring you real talk and unpack the behind the curtain strategies with the entrepreneurs who are doing it or who have been there, done that, all to help your startup grow up and stand out. Join the Hype Nation to catch every new episode, plus get resources and other stuff that actually help you, not the whack promotional junk that other companies try to shove down your throat. All you have to do is add your email at startuphypeman.com. Ready for some real talk? Time now for me, Raj Nation, to turn it over to, well, me, Raj Nation, for this week's conversation. From Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, residing in Boston, Massachusetts, Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the microphone, Will Herman! Hey Raj, that's pretty wild. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode. This is our season finale. We are with Will Herman today. Who is Will Herman? This man is quite accomplished to say the least. So if you recall about a year ago, we had a guest on this show by the name of Raj Bhargava who is the co-author of the Startup Playbook. Well, he was co-author with our guest today, Will Herman. So they wrote that book together. It's a book that you know none, none of you can see the video, but it's sitting on the bookshelf behind me right now. I recommend it to every entrepreneur that I talk to. It really is a go-to guide for entrepreneurs. Will has done more than write this book because he has experience that led him to write that book. In fact, he has started five different companies involved in three IPOs and two, excuse me, two IPOs and three acquisitions. He's a mentor at Techstars. He's an active angel investor. When we had Raj on the show last year, I joked that he was the Michael Jordan of entrepreneurship with all the IPOs and acquisitions. Well, I mean, if you're not Jordan, then you're Tom Brady and you're in, you're in Boston. So, so it works out pretty works well. Me, yeah. <laughs> so all that said, Will Herman, welcome to the show today. Thanks so much, Raj. Great to be here. Our topic today, and we, this is an awesome topic, is how do you figure out equity distribution? Can you tell our listeners sort of what this means to you, why it's on your mind and why it's important? Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, I, I uh, you know, I'm, I've, I've invested in over 70 companies and I've run across this problem personally, myself and companies that I advise and companies I've started. Um, it is a classic problem that whacks the team early on. In fact, in, if, it's, if it's not done correctly, it can cause a breakdown in the team over time when people get really into it, they're working their asses off, they, they are struggling day to day. They'll say, why is it that uh, so-and-so over there has 15% of the company when I only have 12, 12.5% of the company? without any basis for, uh, for thinking about it. Um, it's divisive. I think uh, CB Insights in their, their uh, review of uh, postmortems of failed companies found that uh, team breakdown is the third um, biggest reason for companies failing. 
And it's, uh, it's pretty clear why. I mean, it's, it's, uh, we're capitalists, we're entrepreneurs, this is why we're doing it. If we feel, feel like we're not being treated fairly, it causes loads of problems. So getting it right up front, getting as close to right as possible. There's no perfect way of doing it. Um, it depends on each, indiv- each individual and each t- team, but getting as close to right as possible and keeping things open to change it over time um, are really critical uh, to have a team that, that stays together. This is going to be a very good topic for all of our listeners, and I'm very excited to dive more into it. Before we do, let's learn a little bit more about you and your background in your uh, sort of Michael Buffer-esque introduction that I gave you there. Uh, I mentioned you're from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, you were actually born in New York, and I think Brooklyn, you said uh, earlier. Brooklyn, yeah. So, yeah. Um, let's say, you know, now you're boss. You're an East Coast guy, more or less. Uh, your, your formative years... I am an East Coast guy. You know, your formative years were probably like the seven, eight years in Philadelphia from around 10 years old and up. What do you think... Let me ask you this. What was it like at nine, 10 years old moving, right? Because I remember around nine, 10, my parents suggested moving and I threw a fit and somehow we didn't move. <laughs> wow. Uh, what was it like moving? And then what do you feel... Philadelphia gave you? Uh, wow. What is it? What is it like moving? I don't, I don't really remember it that much. Although we moved from a, uh, uh, house. I, 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 I'm one of those stories about you subsequently go back to the house you grew up in and it, you thought it was a mansion and it was actually a matchbox. (laughs) And, uh, uh, that's what I was in, but we moved into an apartment in uh, outside of Philadelphia, and I think that was the biggest thing. And I had to, uh, and I was walking to school. I, I also found that I was uh, I was in fifth grade at the time, and I probably had the education of a third grader. Um, so uh, from from uh, from the schools I had been at previously, so that was it. Took me about two years to catch up in school. That's probably my biggest memory of of the move there. Um, what did Philadelphia gave me? Uh, love of cheesesteak. That's, uh, that's pretty clear. Soft pretzels. Uh, the 76ers, the Eagles, both of which I passed on. Now I live in Boston, of course. And, um, uh, and Rocky. Oh, yeah, Rocky. That would, that would, be, uh, that would be it. I, don't, I wonder if Rocky was actually influential in my entrepreneurial career later. That's, I, I should think about that sometime. Well, every day in business is like running up a step. So, <laughs> well, that's that's the good days. <laughs> yeah, the bad days are in the meat locker. Uh, uh, so, I, I don't know. Philadelphia's not an entrepreneurial town, or at least wasn't at the time. And uh, you know, I happened to uh, to join a startup there early on. I actually quit college um, to join a startup outside of Philadelphia, and it was a great experience. It failed. But it was a great experience, and uh, and I was just fortunate to find an entrepreneurial experience there because, like I said, there weren't many. Yeah. Um, How about like, you know, because I don't expect most people to know like, oh, they get, there was an entrepreneurship hub at 11 years old for me to go to or 14 years old, right? Right. Um, right. Especially in the, not, not to date you, but in the pre-internet era. Yep. Um, how about Fair like enough. from like a... a almost like a personality perspective. Do you feel like you developed an, an East Coast edge to you? Uh, what do you think, almost from like a, a soul perspective, what, what did you get out of Philadelphia? That's a tough one. Um, I, you know, I think, I think there's a, uh, a very strong sense of community in Philadelphia. 
and um, and and probably a lot of what led me into such a believer in building strong teams came from some of that. I mean, it's hard it, it's hard to tell the difference between what you what uh, what stuff you pick up in your family and uh, what stuff you pick up from your community and environment. Um, very close personal relationships for my first time in my life. Um, many which have, have continued on now. I still communicate uh, frequently with several of the people I, uh, I met when I was 12, 13 years old. Um, and I think that, uh, that came out of, of, uh, of what I learned, what I gleaned from the environment uh, in Philly. Uh, you know, again, hard to break that out, but, but, uh, but it's there and it's important and it's an important part of my life. Now, when we get into now like your, your, your professional history, the, what I think is very interesting here, I mentioned in your introduction, you've got an extensive background and I only very briefly scratched the surface of it because of uh, just how impressive it is. Uh, for everyone listening, if you've seen a LinkedIn profile before, you'll notice like when you go to someone's profile, it'll show you like their most recent job and then you click a little arrow that says, click to show more experience of this person. For Will, I had to click that button five times <laughs> because that's how much experience you have dating all the way back to, you know, I guess 1979. Um, so you've, you've, you've done a lot. You've seen a lot. You've even, and I, and I think it's funny because you write in your, your little description here, you're like confused yet. So I'm just going to read this blurb here. You said, I sold my last company, Innovata, a supplier of electronic design automation software tools to Mentor Graphics in 2002. Innovata was created when ViewLogic, my previous company, did a reverse acquisition of Summit Design, a public company. I co-founded ViewLogic in 1984 and left the company in 1992, a year after the company's IPO. I then rejoined the company in 1995, initially as president, then as CEO. ViewLogic Systems was acquired by Synopsys in 1997. One year later, most of the assets acquired by Synopsys were repurchased by a small team I led via an MBO reforming ViewLogic as a new private company. <laughs> Confused yet? <laughs> so I, I don't even know if I have a question from that. More, almost a more just like, wow, that's a lot that you packed into 17 years you managed to fit into one paragraph. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it's it, it's uh, I, it's it's a lot of financial engineering there, but but um, uh, you know it was a ride, it was a ride, and a, and a lot of success. I think in those transactions we probably returned about four billion dollars in value to our uh, our shareholders. Um, you know, we were just optimizing the whole way. It's not like we planned that. I don't think any sane person would plan that path. But we uh, each step of the way, we looked at what's the best way to uh, to make this this happen. And a, another important thing there is that the the team in all of those transactions remained pretty much the same. Um, one or two people changed, but the core team remained the same through the whole thing. And and um, and that's really the core of of all that success. Yeah. I think that's a really good segue then into our topic question for today, which is how do you figure out equity distribution? Now you mentioned at the start, you said CB Insights released that article of the top reasons for startup failure. And one of those reasons is team breakdown. What I think is interesting when I think of, you know, wrong team, I never think of it in terms of, oh, they couldn't figure out 
how to distribute ownership of the company responsibly or in a fair enough way. So it's very interesting to think that that could be a res- or that could be why a team breaks down. But I think the entry point, regardless, is making sure you have the right people together. Would you say that's accurate? Uh, totally, totally. It's it's you you can't fix the problems of having the wrong team. You just can't fix them. Now I have had guests on this show who have started comp- who have done solo founding. I have had guests on this show and clients of mine who start companies with their best friends. I have had guests on the show who start companies with their family members. I wouldn't say there's one route because everyone finds what works for them, but regardless of who, you know, what relationship they have to you, what do you recommend are things a person should be looking for in the founding team? What, what qualities or characteristics? Yeah, so so I, I would say that the the three you mentioned the uh, the th- three teams the solo founder the family and friends one or family one certainly um, and um, uh, best friends was the best third. friends yeah so the third one um, all of the I mean anything can can work depending on the people those are all low percentage plays mm. um, especially solo founder super low percentage plays although with my family maybe the family one would be the the lowest percentage play. (laughs) And I'm sure I'm not alone in that. (laughs) Sorry, sis. Um, uh, So, so, so I, I I have a model that I, I think, um, well, you know, in, in my experience, this has worked best. What, what I like to think of is the founding team should be uh, comprised of the people who make up the best whole person you could possibly imagine. So that is each team member should fill in the weaknesses of the rest of the team. Now, you could do that. So by definition, you can't do that with a single person. At least I've never met that person who knows everything and has all the skills and capabilities and psychological attributes Mm -hmm. um, that exist. Uh, But if you know what you're doing and you know what you're building, um, and you know about yourself, so so introspection is really important here to understand your strengths, own strengths and weaknesses. You go out and fill out the team to make up for those strengths and weaknesses. So if I'm an introvert, I at least need to go find another extrovert. Somewhere on the team, there better be some extroversion. If I am a, a good, you know, a great engineering guy, I got to go find someone who's a great biz dev person. You know, somebody who is a great operations person, who is a great finance person. Um, and, and basically, you know when you're done, when you can't think of any of the holes you have in your team being filled, uh, any, any holes that need to be filled. When you start hiring people who, are, are, who know just what you know, then you've gone too far. Um, you want the best whole person that you possibly can have, um, that ideal person with all of the skills and talents. Now, I mean, one of, the, one of the key questions I get as an uh, investor is, when do I know when I'm done my founding team and when do I start hiring my first employees type people, you know, who's not getting founder's equity? It's that first person who is redundant on the team where you're, 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 um, you're increasing the amount of breadth you have instead of the amount of depth you have. That's a really 
vital point there. I'm going to repeat it because it's, I think it's important for everyone listening. So you know you're done. Like if it's not your founding team and it is now your first employee, when the position is redundant, you have filled out all the gaps, all the holes, all the logic areas, and now the next person on is to reinforce an existing area that you've already covered. So my follow-up question to that is in building that founding team, right? You know, I think logically what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Unfortunately, humans are not logical beings. (laughs) And if I start a company on day one, I have some emotion around it that like, well, I've been with this since day one and, and me and my friend have been with this since day one and person number three we could bring you on as a co-founder, but you came on in month eight. So you don't know what it's been like. I mean, yeah, you're technically a founder, but you haven't been with us the whole time. So can you speak to what you've seen in the entrepreneurs you've worked with? Like, what does that come up? Um, are they, do they have an ego about who gets that title of founder versus employee? Yeah. Yeah. People, like you said, people are perfect egos egos of, and, and I'm one, you know, I'm a guy who needs my, you know, ego stroked all the time. So I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not. And the way uh, I introduced you must've been great. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was very good. Thank you. I'm going to play that back for myself, you know, every time I get in the car, the, the um, uh, it, it's egos get in the way. I mean, egos are, are, you know, we all need to keep our egos in check. And, and, and when you don't, you're, you become irrational about it and you say, well, you know, yeah, that my founding team is based on time. It's not based on capability. It's not based on value to the organization. Um, we, we, you know, stepping ahead a little bit here, we, we actually like to look at a process where you put yourself in, uh, sort of in the mindset, uh, of being five years from now. Okay, you haven't failed, which makes you rare, um, and and you've you've reached some level of success. Now you're going to look back, and you're going to say, "What brought us that success? You know, what were the actions? What were the capabilities? What were the core um, the core positive um, uh, forward motion things that we we've put in place that that have made us a success?" And when you look back there, it sort of takes away a six or eight, eight month or even a year long difference. If having that team together was part of the core of why you were successful five years from now, then it doesn't really matter, you know, if somebody started here or there. Now, you might look at that, you might say initially the equity that a person who starts a year later than everybody else, what they get is less. And that's totally reasonable. Um, they haven't taken the risk. They haven't done the work. Um, so that's that's totally you know that's total possibility. But that doesn't mean that they they're not necessarily a founder. Yeah. Now that you bring up the you know the golden word of this conversation, which is equity, right? So you've got four co-founders of a company. Why do they not all deserve twenty five percent of the company? Yeah. Well, the biggest reason is that uh, nobody, none of the founders should be equal. It's, there is a long, a long line of failed companies that broke down because, um, because they just, they did, you know, King Solomon did and, uh, you know, divided the baby in half. 
And it, it just doesn't work. Somebody needs to be in charge, period. That's all there is. There has to be a bottom line. And, um, and that is so painful for, uh, for startup founders. Um, uh, and, and so they take the easy way out. And, and by the way, I mean, the, the breakdown of, I'm going a little off base here, but, but um, the, the, the breakdown of equal shares is also a signal to investors. Um, it's a signal that this team isn't strong enough to make the tough decisions. Now, sometimes that was a tough decision getting it to, to, uh, to equals, equal shares. But in fact, it's generally a sign that that uh, the team couldn't sit down and say, no, there are different values, there are different reasons, there are different um, capabilities at, uh, at the plate here, and, and they need to all be different. So, um, so, so equals, e- equals generally bad. Yeah. Well, I think that's, I, I had never thought of it in the terms of, hey, you're negative signaling to investors that you don't know how to make decisions, you don't know how to share, you know, share responsibly more or less. Right. Um, something that I remember, you know, from my first business, you know, and we weren't a, you know, we weren't a startup, we were a small business. Right. Um, but my co-founder and I, for that, we made the mistake where we went in, we're like, we both have 50% ownership of the company. And we're like, no, like we're friends. Like we know, like we'll be able to solve disputes and everything. Right. And for the most part we did where it came an issue was, we got to a point where he's saying to himself, I don't like, I don't want to do this anymore. Right. And he owns 50% of the company. So like, I, I want to keep going. He wants to shut it down. And ultimately we talked it out, right. And everyone, we decided that was the right decision. But part of that was like, well, maybe like literally I remember we were sitting down, I think at a Starbucks and he was like, well, this is probably why they told us one of us should have 51%, the other should have 49% or some other distribution like that. Because right now, like you can't move forward without me, without me being on board and vice versa. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think you're right. It does create those sort of, um, it, it makes the conversation so much more difficult later on when there is disagreement. Now, how do you decide who's going to be in charge? Right. Well, yeah. So, so being in charge doesn't necessarily equate to equity. You know, an, an analogous situation is the co-CEO thing. So, sorry, I'm just going back on the, the yeah. equal distribution. Um, Co-CEOs is another, another signaling sign that, you know, that, that you just can't make decisions. And by the way, I mean, how can possibly, can co- how possibly can co-CEOs work in the long run? <laughs> and, and everything is great while everything is great. As you point out, it's 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 when the stuff stuff goes off the rails that that um, equal responsibility, equal shares um, have a problem. So so that that said, um, uh, you know how do you how do you decide who's in charge? Well, that's a that's a communal effort. Sometimes it works itself out because there is a well, they're not a lone founder, they're sort of the lone creator of the business or the, the initial creator of the business who's, uh, who's logical, you know, who's, who just falls into that role. They're actually building a team around them. That, that, that often happens. When it's a team of people um, that starts it, you know, for, for people sitting around going like, hey, you know, the, the world needs this, the world needs this widget, this service, this, uh, this function. Um, we suggest that it's one of the first things you talk about. 
you know, after you've established that, okay, there is really a need and we can really do this thing, you've got to, you've got to deal with it first. But there's no panacea here in, in, um, in setting up who's in charge. Um, we, we, we strongly believe that, that um, uh, you know, the, the, the CEO needs to be a visionary leader and early on needs to be an operational leader as well. Um, uh, and those are two unique skills and independent skills. And I'd say that the person on the team who best represents both of those skills um, should be in that role. And I think that's ignored often. I think often the person with the idea becomes a CEO and the, and the person with the idea often is not the right person to be operationally in charge, um, to make the tough decisions on a day-to-day basis. They may be just the idea person and I'm not big on ideas. Ideas are good to start, but they, um, as, as the value in the company, it wanes, over, it wanes, your idea wanes over time. You're going to pivot, you're going to change, you're going to, to adapt. Um, there is value in that initial idea, but the, the, uh, the real skill in the CEO is the strongest influencer who also is, um, is best operationally, who's going to make the tough decisions moving forward. Yeah. So, you know, as you're talking, what I'm trying to do on my end is create like a a sequence or at least a bullet point checklist at the very least. So what I've got so far is, you know, your founding team ends when you've filled all the holes and the next person you bring on is not for a new skill you haven't, you don't yet already have. Um, After that, what I've got is, Hey, equal distribution of your company is bad. Well, then what do you do about that? And how do you figure out who gets what? And what you've said is, well, you know, an equity slant does not automatically mean more power goes to the more equity person. It could be the person who had the idea naturally has, you know, a certain level of equity that someone else doesn't have. So then from there in picking, okay, well, who should lead this company? Who is the CEO? Definitely don't do a co-CEO. Um, but the person who's the visionary, who's both visionary and an operational leader is best in the CEO role. Have I accurately captured that thus far? I think that's right. I, I'll, I want to come back on the equity portion, though, because I, I don't. I mean, generally speaking, if if you're going to give if you're going to give a person the keys, um, and that is the operational keys. That says the CEO role is operational keys, not necessarily visionary, but operational keys. Um, they generally need. To, if they're not at the top of the equity stack, they they should be very close. There might be a case where, like, a CEO is brought in because the original team doesn't have the operational chops to make it happen. They may not have as much as the initial founder of the the company. Um, so, but they generally are are near the top. We we have a list on on the on equity. Um, equity distribution where point number one is, um, you know, just don't split evenly. It's, it, it will hurt you when you've got to make tough decisions. Um, uh, they, it's also important. So it's complex, like you said, right? Some people are going to be, uh, uh, sacrificing salary for equity and it's important to split that away from, equity that is used to recognize and reward their abilities as part of the team 
as the piece of the team, but often it gets thrown in the mix. So it's, it's important to pull out the substitution for, um, uh, for salary. It's important to pull out any investment that they might be making if they're throwing some capital into the company. Um, uh, it's always important to note that, um, that equity should be vested it's good for the team. There's a lot of pushback and founders about having, having to do vesting, but it's good for the team. When you think about the other team members, if somebody bails at the end of two years, why should they have all of the equity that they had? It's, it's actually a good thing. It seems bad, but it's a really good thing. Um, uh, and um, it's important to recognize that equity can be changed over time. It is not absolutely fixed. So if it turns out that somebody's a better performer than they, than they seem to be at the beginning or more value to the company than it seemed at the beginning, that can be changed. Let me, let me pause you there because that was actually my next question was, how do you go about like the redistribution of equity based on, you know, time performance, change in company needs, et cetera. Like what, what are signals, I guess, what are maybe one to three signals to look for to say, Hey, it's time to have a discussion around that. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, a lot of perception in that. Uh, so, so um, this, what, what I see happen a lot now is that there are people along the way that decide that, um, uh, they really don't want to work as hard as other people. This is a big breakdown in, in one of the big breakdowns in, uh, in founding teams is that, especially if you have mixed, you have somebody who has a family and somebody who doesn't have a family. The um, one decides reasonably so that their work-life balance needs to be different than, than the others. It's really important to speak out and to discuss that as a team and say, that's, that's okay, but... Um, if I'm working 80 hours a week and you're working 40 hours a week, mm, you know, you know, we shouldn't have similar, you know, similar amounts of equity in the company, assuming all other things e that, that are equal. Um, there's also times when you, when, um, you're making shifts all, all along with your product, with the company, with your focus, um, you do a pivot and you find that, um, actually you're more reliant on, on making this situation up, but you're more reliant on, on uh, biz dev than your sales than you are on on engineering itself. You thought you were going to be a technology driven company, and really, it turns out you're a market driven company. You're a sales driven company. Now, it could be that you know you've got a small engineering team now, but you've got a larger mm. sales team. You need to rebalance because that wasn't the way you set it up to begin with. My final question before we wrap up is, you know, you've been on the entrepreneur side, the founder side, and the, the investor side. So there's also an equity distribution that comes into play once investors are, you know, quite literally on the table, on the cap table. Um, what do you see? How, how should entrepreneurs be thinking about protecting slash distributing equity to investors? Like what are things to say, to look at like, Hey, you're getting a fair, fair deal here versus really consider if you want to give up that much. Yeah, yeah, this is a really good question. And, and, and as you can imagine, this comes up roughly 100% of the time. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, and, and it's, it's, I, 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 uh, I, always, I always write the numbers down. I go to a whiteboard 
when I'm answering this question and I write the numbers, the, the math down, because the math is pretty simple, that um, generally speaking, again, considering nine out of 10 companies fail and in those failures, it makes zero difference, no difference at all. What you take, you know, give your investors 100%, you take 100%, makes no difference, you work zero. Um, in that, that 10% of the time when the companies succeed, they, um, the only factor that matters is the size of the company. That's it. No other factor matters. So if, um, if you build, and when I say it, the size of the company, it means sort of the, va- the final valuation, the exit valuation of the company. And you're going to exit because you're, you're talking about taking venture, venture capital. So, so if the company only exceeds after five years to become a $10 million company, again, it doesn't matter. If the company becomes a half billion dollar company, then it starts to matter. But at a half billion dollars, everybody makes money. And right. whether you are shaving it by a half point or a point somewhere, you could argue, okay, well, that was you know $4 million I didn't get on top of the $40 million you did. <laughs> so so the, the only factor that really matters, I mean, you should always work to try to, to make sure you optimize the amount of the company you retain when you bring in a venture capitalist or a group. Um, on the on the margin, it just doesn't matter in the math. The math only matters in making the. I think about it as slices of pizza versus the whole pizza pie. By making the pie as large as possible, everybody does well. By trying to optimize the size of any slice, doesn't really work very well. So, so if if that venture capitalist can add value to your company in, you know, in, in big chunks, but they want two points extra along the way, just doesn't matter if they can really add value, increase the size of the pie. And what I want to reinforce here is, you know, I know I say it in the show introduction, but I just want to reinforce it here anyways. The stat is nine out of 10 companies fail. The reason why this conversation is important and why all the conversations I try to have on the show are important is because Failure is the standard. It's the expectation. So if you're going to be in that 10%, you have to be willing to look at things and do things differently than what nine of your peers are doing. Now, the, the, the flag I've chosen to put down to help with that is storytelling and brand messaging because I think that's a vital component to this. And that's how I want to help you know, shift that stat. But whether it's storytelling, whether it's equity distribution, uh, to, me, to be honest, it's all of it, right? It's, it's this, that, and the other. But these are the things, entrepreneurs who are listening, that you've got to be paying attention to and acting on if you want your company to succeed because failure is the expectation. It is the standard. So you've got to be willing to do something better, uniquely, or differently than what everyone else is doing. Now, Will, Great. can you let our listeners know where they can find you, where they can learn more about you? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, me personally. I'm on LinkedIn. I mean, easy to find. Just look up Will Herman. Um, uh, you can also check out. Uh, there's a whole bio and description of the book, the Startup Playbook, and startup-playbook.com. Um, and obviously on Facebook and Twitter, I'm Will Herman. Just uh, W I L L H E R M A N. Awesome. And again, I can't, every entrepreneur who I personally work with, I recommend they read the startup playbook. 
everyone who's listening, I highly recommend you read Startup Playbook as well. It really is, I, I like it because it's almost like a choose your own adventure book. Like it's like a manual, you know, if you want to flip to a certain page to read just about one section, I mean, it, it's not going to hurt you if you read the sections before that, but you can also read it, you know, kind of in a silo itself and it's helpful. And there's a whole, and there's literally a whole chapter on here's every type of capital available to you and when it makes sense and why you would do this. So, and that's just one chapter of the book. So everyone listening, get this book. And I'm not just saying that because Will is on the line. <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks, thanks, for, thanks for the plug though. <laughs> now to wrap up, uh, we'll finish out. We finish every show, which is final top line takeaways or piece of advice from today's conversation. Um, I'll go first and then I'll give it to you. So the topic was how do you figure out equity distribution? Um, my biggest takeaway out of this conversation was essentially no, no off the bat, equal distribution is bad and understand that the CEO has to be the person who has the visionary skills and the operational skills and equity should align in some fashion with them being that decision maker. Will, what's your sort of top line advice or takeaway for the entrepreneurs? Um, I, um, uh, I think those are great points. I, I, I am, I am, I, I love having a good team. When you have a good, strong, solid team that works as a, as a single unit, um, it is amazingly powerful what you can get done. I mean, you can, it is the, the, um, the sum of the parts is way greater than any of the individual parts. And if, if you're successful at building a team, you can weather the tough stuff, you can take advantage of the good stuff, um, and you can celebrate as a team, as a family. And, and I think that's super important. Will Herman, a.k.a. the Tom Brady startup. <laughs> I think Brady has five rings now, right? I think it's six. Oh, he's got, okay, all right. <laughs> Almost Brady status. You'll get this. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Thank you for closing out uh, another great season of the podcast. My pleasure, Raj. Great, great talking with you. That brings us to a close. Did you like what you heard? Did it tingle your earbuds? Support your startup ecosystem and share this episode with another founder to help them. If you don't have anyone in mind, then leave a rating and review of the show on iTunes so more entrepreneurs can learn about it. And if you want more, head to startuphypeman.com and click on the knowledge section to get a bonus blog post written by this week's guest where they unpack the topic even more. Remember to subscribe to the show on iTunes or Spotify or Google Play or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Startup Hype Man is more than a podcast. In fact, we support startups across the United States and globally develop sales and marketing acumen with messaging that stands out to customers and stands apart from competitors. Learn more and fill out a form at StartupHypeMan.com if you want to chat. Shout out to this week's guests for spending their time with us and shout out to music artist Sir the Baptist for providing our show's theme song. Catch you next time. Hype Man out. Word up. Raise up. Got you howling at the moon, yeah. This is dance with the devil, girl. Instead of sundown, too, yeah. This is dance with the devil, girl. Tell me what you're gonna do, This is dance with the devil, girl. And if you can't get it loose, then fall into the truth. It got you howling at the moon, yeah.
It's a dance with the devil, girl. This a dance with the devil, girl. Tell me what you gonna do. This a dance with the devil, girl. And if you can't get a loose, then it's a dance with the devil.